Good morning. Let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, bless your word as it goes forth. Give us ears to hear and a heart to obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for many years I've been part of a Bible study on Whidbey Island attended by folks from different South Whidbey churches. Late last year we finished a study of the Gospel of John and we were considering what do we do now? One lady in our group came to me and suggested a study on biblical responses to challenges from all sides of a secular culture. Some examples of that would be a loss of freedom, including speech, lack of honesty and integrity in government, homosexuality, gender dysphoria, abortion, persecution of Christians, racial discrimination, and all of that. Well, I certainly agree these are relevant topics, but to be honest, I'm not generally motivated to do topical studies. Instead, my preference has always been to do deeper dives into books of the Bible. So after talking about it for a while, our group wound up doing a study of First and Second Peter. Now this worked well for me since I had never done a deeper study into these two letters written by the Apostle Peter less than a generation after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Doing some background research, I was frankly surprised to discover Peter's letter addresses an audience who were experiencing many of the same issues you and I are experiencing now in the 21st century. Now, these people were Christians, who in many ways were not accepted by the community around them. They were cut off from friendships, employment, trade unions, political participation, and they also suffered personal rejection by many of their fellow citizens. What I want to do in the next few moments is to first describe who these early Christians were and where they lived. Next, I want to talk about Peter's advice to these suffering believers. And finally, I want to share some takeaways that I received from Peter's letter. So let's start at the beginning with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Reading from the New, New International Version, I quote, To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, unquote. None of these places are obviously names that we would ever hear on the evening news. They are, in fact, all regions located in what is now modern Turkey. The word elect includes both Gentile, meaning non-Jewish, believers and Jewish Christians who now follow Jesus as the promised Messiah. They worship together in house churches and cities throughout this region of the Roman Empire. According to the Cultural Background Study Bible, and I quote, Romans view Christians, like Jews, as hostile to the rest of society. Certain charges became so common they were stereotypical by 2nd century. Some examples of that would be Christians were labeled as atheists. Why? For rejecting pagan gods. Well, if they simply added Yahweh to the existing pantheon of pagan gods, that would probably be okay. I mean, what's one more god to their existing pantheon already, correct? But early Christians and Jews rightly insisted Yahweh is the one and only God, creator of heaven and earth. Christians were labeled as cannibals for eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. As ridiculous as that sounds, that's pretty much what happened. 
and they were labeled incestuous for statements like, well, I love you, brother, or I love you, sister. Now, if they had news media and television in their day, I'm sure many Christians would have loved the opportunity to defend their beliefs to the public at large. Unlike Christianity, Judaism was not a good target for outright persecution because there were a lot of Jews in the Roman Empire and they were popular in some social circles as well. Good example, Nero's mistress was a patron of Jewish causes. By contrast, the Jesus movement was viewed as a form of Judaism whose support was tenuous even in Jewish circles, and therefore it offered an appropriate political scapegoat. Instead of worshipping pagan gods like everyone else, Christians were ridiculed for worshipping a dead Jewish carpenter who was crucified as a criminal, and not comparing that well with pagan gods. Now the Greek word for strangers used by Peter means those who live in countries not their own or who live with people to whose nation they do not belong. They may technically be citizens of the empire, but rejection and ridicule from neighbors and fellow citizens make them feel like they are part of a different world, which in fact they are. No one who decides to follow Jesus would doubt they are indeed chosen and elected by God and are members of God's kingdom, and therefore called to lead a holy and separate life. So what did Peter write to these persecuted believers? They straddled two worlds, the world they knew and they were born into, and the world the kingdom of God had called them to. First, we need to understand the nature of their suffering. Martyrdom, for example, was not common throughout the empire, but largely focused on Rome whenever it suited the political purposes of the emperor. The kind of suffering experienced by Peter's audience is rejection, ridicule, and a cutting off from friendships, including religious, social, and political institutions of their day. Believers were outcasts in the marketplace, and many suffered economically because of their identification with Jesus. Now, the main thing about Peter's advice is that it was not given to relieve suffering or any suggestion about conforming to culture in order to get better treatment. Peter's concern is, is that these early believers remain holy and set apart from their culture, not conform to it. The word holy comes from the Greek word hagias, where the fundamental idea is separation, devotion to the service of deity, sharing in God's purity, and abstaining from earth's defilement. As he writes in 1 Peter 1, 13-17, and I quote, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here, in reverent fear. So in regard to suffering, Peter observes in 1 Peter 4, 1-4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human evil desires, 
but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you." Unquote. As we all know, the temptation to conform in order to be accepted and liked can often be enormous. Remember, we don't suffer because we are Christians. We suffer when other people recognize we are Christians. Peter again reminds his audience to expect suffering and ridicule, if for no other reason than we identify with Christ. Peter continues his letter in 1 Peter 4, 12-16, when he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We suffer because Jesus suffered. I think some of the saddest words of Scripture recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, where the writer of John says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Jesus was born in Israel, the very land and people Yahweh carved out as his own possession, a descendant of David, born of Jewish parents in a Jewish village. Yet he was despised and rejected by his own people during his teaching ministry. So Peter then admonishes his readers not to give up, but react to insults and slander with grace and gentleness. For example, 1 Peter 3, 15-17 But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, says Peter, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now I take away several things from Peter's letter. First, the inevitability of suffering. Why do we suffer persecution? The only reason that matters is that Jesus suffered, and likewise we also suffer when we identify with Jesus. Just make sure we don't suffer for being a nuisance, or worse. Second thing I took from Peter's letter is be holy. Now we can achieve this as we remain steadfast in fellowship, the word, prayer, and worship. I am thankful for all the great vision and work being done by leaders in our church who promote and teach discipleship. I must confess, however, I have always thought of discipleship as more than just one-on-one -on -one or even a small group. In my experience over six decades serving in various churches, I have discovered discipleship takes place whenever and wherever God's people meet for worship, fellowship, prayer, and service. God gave each one of us gifts, including intending that we all use them. 
Discipleship happens as we teach, exhort, comfort, serve, and admonish one another in our shared relationships. Now, the third thing I took away is that we can teach our young people to prepare for suffering and hard times that are sure to come. I have always believed in an intergenerational church, young and old worshiping together, singing together in the choir, doing Bible study and Sunday school together. We need the energy of youth along with the wisdom of the elderly. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is, you know, to this day, I've never, I believe, had a young person come to me and say, Hey, Art, you're an old guy, having lived many years. What's it been like to follow Jesus? Looking back over your life, what are some of the things you did right? What are some of the things you did wrong? Do you have any regrets? And perhaps the basic question, was it worth it? I suggest only an old person can answer that sort of question. Another example is married couples who have been married for a long time, particularly those who celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. In addition to giving everyone a slice of cake, perhaps there are older couples who might also share the key to their marital success. What did they look for in a mate? How did they handle stress and conflict in times of crisis? What did they learn about God along the way? I believe a successful intergenerational church doesn't waste the talents of either the young or the old, and we should not have to choose between one or the other. And finally, we must ask God to give us a love and grace that only He can bestow upon us. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is most important. It may be hard to do on all occasions, but love covers a multitude of sins, including our own. I confess the hardest for me is to show love and grace to those outside the church who slander, lie, and are themselves filled with hatred. I find it really hard to control my own speech, whether on social media or speaking with friends in a restaurant. Being loving and gentle, quite frankly, is simply not my nature. But that is exactly what Jesus wants me to do. And the Bible says he will give me his spirit to enable me to speak and act in ways that please him. Okay, my time is up. Thank you for joining me in this discussion of First Peter. In the words of the late Billy Graham, may the Lord bless you real good. Amen.